as well. You will be tested afterwards to see how you do. Okay. I knew that we were going to do this sometime, and I had offered it to Paul if he wanted to do it while I was gone. And it probably worked out well because I did not have to prepare um, as much for this day. But we're going to deal with the problem of holy war in the Old Testament. Holy war in the Old Testament. What about God telling Israel to go and utterly destroy the Canaanites? And particularly when we were in Joshua 10, we saw that God said, you go and you utterly destroy these cities, and they utterly destroyed these cities and every person who was in it. Now, I have looked back at lessons I preached and sermons I did and I had preached on this and made some of the same points in the late uh, 1990s but I have to acknowledge that when I preached that it really wasn't something that concerned me at all. I knew people used it against Scripture, but it wasn't something that I deeply felt the burden to explain. But after September 11th of 2001, when some used their religion as an excuse to make an indiscriminate attack on Americans, that made me think about it differently. It didn't change all my answers, but I could see more and understand more of the difficulty after that experience. Now, what I'm going to give you, it's largely what Paul has already sent out. And I hope that you uh, have access to that and looked over that. We want to incorporate a few verses that I realized I should have included but did not. Most of all, I hope you got to look up the verses because that is the key. But what is this pro- what about God telling Israel to go and destroy, particularly innocent children? How do we explain that? Now, I want to give you to this word of caution. I don't think the answers we give will convince the hardened skeptic. And there were people who knew Jesus raised from the dead who didn't believe. That is not my goal. If we could do that, that's great. But my goal is to show more people who are open to faith that there are some reasonable explanations of this. And and for people like you who are believers, when confronted with the question, some things you could answer. And feel free to add your comments, but... First of all, the sins of the Canaanites were great. 
the sins of the Canaanites were great. And there are a multitude of passages that deal with this. But look at Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 particularly warn against sexual immorality. They warn against sexual immorality. In Leviticus 18, beginning with verse 24, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. Having relationships, sexual relationships with near relatives, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I'm casting out before you have been defiled. The land has become defiled. Therefore, I have visited its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. So I visited my punishment upon the land. Their sins have defiled the land. The land has spewed them out. Remember the church at Laodicea? It's told it will be vomited out of God's mouth. Same kind of thing right here. Spewed out, vomited out of his mouth. Verse 26. But as for me, but as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my commandments, and you shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns with you. Notice these sexual standards apply to Israel. They apply to the alien living among Israel. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. So the land may not spew you out should you defile it as it spewed out the nation which has been before you. So, in this particular passage, this emphasizes that Israel's enemies are driven out of the land. It's not just God hates these people and God wants to give you the land and they're inconveniently in the way. No, their sins are exceedingly grave. Now Leviticus 20 deals with the same list of sins, same list of sins, and it emphasizes the same thing. I want you also to notice that uh, that this was something uh, that something the people did was uh, worship uh, Molech and offer their children uh, to other gods in verses one through five. They offered human sacrifices of their children. And that was a sin that called for judgment. How much longer is God going to have mercy on a nation like us who kills our innocent, unborn children and promote it in the name of freedom and justice? That led to the destruction of these people. I want to tell you something that I know is true about you and me. We say their sins deserve judgment. There is not a one of us 
who begins to grasp how horrible, how hideous, how ugly sin is to God. None of us. We are just not holy enough to perceive how evil sin is. But I do believe that in the cross, when you find Jesus, God coming to flesh, being spit upon and slapped in the face, that those are pictures of how ugly sin is. For every time we choose to sin and we choose to disobey, we are basically doing that. We are spitting in the face of God. And so when we say their sins deserve judgment, it's hard for us really to grasp that emotionally. It's hard for us to realize how profound, how serious that is. And may the Lord help us to get a picture of the hideousness of sin. Now, what questions, what ideas? There were other sins listed like their worship of other gods and their witchcraft in Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 to 14 is a reason as well. But what else? Anything that you would say about that? I want you to too know this. That God was extremely patient. with the nations. God was extremely patient with these nations. Now, how do I know that? A couple of ways. One, look at Genesis 15. Genesis 15. God is telling Abraham in Genesis 15 in verses 13 through 16. God says, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs while they are enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will judge that nation whom they serve and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, when do we date Abraham? <laughs> now, there are a couple of different chronologies of Abraham to try to figure out when did Abraham live? You could place him uh, around 2100 B.C. You could place him around 1850 B.C. But when did the conquest of Canaan 
occur. I don't know that we've said that much about that in class, but when did the conquest of Canaan occur? Fifty BC. Okay, about fourteen fifty or so would be the Exodus, and then one or forty years, probably close to around fourteen hundred BC, a few years after. As we're talking about that, remember the dates. Later, the date gets smaller in these cases, but about fourteen hundred BC. Look at that. That how much time. God gave Israel to repent. He said their iniquity is not yet full. They're already of sin. They're already doing a lot of the atrocities that Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 18 tell us about. But their iniquity is not yet full. So God was patient with them, giving them an opportunity to repent. Now this was a passage I did not have jotted down. This was a passage I did not have jotted down in the notes. But Exodus 17. Who attacked Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt? What group of people? You remember? Who? Yes, the Amalekites or Amalekites. Amalek. And God tells Joshua, God tells Moses to tell Joshua in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I'm going to blot his memory out from under us. Now, um, David mentioned the date about 1450. And of course, some of these dates are disputed, but I do think there's reason to take that as a good date. But around 1450 to just give a rounded number. And remember, the Bible tells us that God told Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 15, God told him that you are to, um, I will punish Amalek for what he did when he, uh, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming back to Egypt. Now, that said in 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 3, that Saul is going to enforce this penalty against the Amalekites. When was that? What were the dates, the general dates? Yeah, around 1050-ish, a little bit after 1100. So around 1050. Did you know the Old Testament never specifically says how much, how long Saul reigned? The statement that he reigned 40 years is made in the New Testament in a sermon by Paul in Acts 13. In in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13, there's a verse, 1 Samuel 13, 1, that says Saul, and the Hebrew says he was year old when he became king and he reigned years. And some have interpreted that he was one year old when he became king and reigned two years. 
There's a problem with the text there. But, but this is my point. God said, I'm going to blot out their memory from under heaven. 400 years. They're given a chance to repent. What verse comes to mind when you see the difference, the, the amount of time between God announcing judgment and God executing judgment in both of those cases? Is there a verse that comes to mind? God's not slack, slack concerning His promises, and a day with the Lord's like a thousand years, and a thousand yes. years is one day. And I think that's in the same context. It's, it's, it's all in Second Peter three, Peter 3 yeah. but particularly Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slow concerning His promises, as some men count slowness, but is long suffering to us, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. God is patient. God is long-suffering. Don't take the continued blessing upon a nation as a sign that God approves that nation. It may be God is long-suffering, giving people an opportunity to repent giving people an opportunity to come to Him. God is holy. But God restrains His wrath so frequently in Scripture. And so when we see God executing these, telling His people to execute judgment, it wasn't, it wasn't one sin over one moment. It was for Decades, generations, centuries of sin. Okay? Any thoughts there? Sarah? It's, it's kind of like the other side of it, I guess. You sometimes wonder how many people suffered during that time period. Yes. Um, yes. How many innocent children? How many, how many women were abused by, whatever? How many men defiled themselves and all of this stuff during that period of time? And you, part, you part of you wants to go. You should have done it sooner, and then you turn it around and you look at it. Well, what if you'd done it sooner to me? Yes, yes, I understand. I understand what you're saying exactly. But but you look at Genesis 19. And look at Judges 19. And you look at the fact that they rape the women in Judges 19. They were wanting to rape the men, but they were thrust to the crowd. They wanted to rape the men in Genesis 19. We look at destruction in a place, and we see that, and we think, how many people, before those angels in Sodom came, how many people suffered? That kind of treatment, that kind of abuse, that kind of degradation before God did. That doesn't mean God doesn't care about those 
victims of the abuse. That doesn't mean that God will not vindicate them someday. But it does mean God is long-suffering. Giving them a chance to repent. And sometimes when we talk about evil happened to me and God did nothing to this person, doesn't mean He never will. But it may mean He is giving them an opportunity to repent and to turn themselves back to Him. Now, I know what I'm about to say will sound foolish to the world. But I trust that it will not sound foolish to you. In spite of what happens, God loves the nations. Now, I am not... I am not stating that there is not a sense in which God hates those who oppose Him. You see that language used often in Scripture. Let me give you just one example. One example of a multitude of examples. The Bible says uh, the uh, Lord six sins, the Lord hates seven are abomination to him. And among those sins, the one who sows discord against uh, um, the one who sows discord among his people. God not only hates the sin, but in some senses. Understand, hates the sinner. But it is also true that God loves the sinner. And God longs for the sinner to come back to Him. Now, let me illustrate this first by a passage about Israel and then by a passage about Moab. Look at Hosea. The book of Hosea. Now, Hosea is sometimes called a prophet of God's love because Hosea's situation with his wife is a picture of God's relentless love for Israel. He loves a wife who is constantly disobedient and constantly adulterous. God, and he keeps loving her. And that is a picture of God's love for Israel. But in Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9, listen to what God says. Hosea is a picture of... He's, he's often called a prophet of God's love, but I didn't finish that idea. He says a whole lot more about God's judgment than he does about God's love. But listen to what God says here. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Now, let me first ask you, who are Adma and Zeboim, Sarah? The, the other cities on the plane that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes. And you see that among other places uh, in Deuteronomy uh, 29, verse 23. So they were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm going to tie that in in just a second. But God has been announcing judgment that the people have continually departed from Him. How can I give you up? How can I surrender you? 
And he says, he says, how can I make you like these cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah? And he says in verse 8, all my, my heart is turned over within me. The word that's used for his heart being turned over is the word used in Genesis 19 verse 25 and 26 for the fact that God overturned Sodom and Gomorrah. The same word used for His judgment against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is used for how His emotional state, if we can describe it that way, of thinking about destruction of His people. Now, when I mention this, some of you all may have to have have had done have done this. If you haven't done this, you probably know of someone who has. Have you known of Christians who had to tell the rebellious and disobedient children? You're going to have to leave this house. And not temporarily. Permanently. You're going to have to leave. You're living in sin. You're living in rebellion. You are a bad influence on the rest of the family. And you're going to have to leave. I know of people who have done that. Did any of them relish that? I can imagine that just as God says, my heart is turned over, all my compassions are kindled, that the parents felt that same way when they said that to the children that they raised and they loved. And yet, we can know that sometimes there's virtually no other decision. God loves us more infinitely than we love our children. For however much we love our children, There's a limit to that because we are finite beings. God is infinite and His love extends to greater heights. And yet God says that of His people. Now, look at the same thing in Jeremiah 48. The same thing that God says of Israel, the same kind of thing He says about Moab. In Jeremiah 48, verse 31, God says, and there's a similar passage in Isaiah 15 and 16, Therefore I shall wail for Moab, even for all Moab shall I cry out, 
I will moan for the men of Keharis. This, the areas of Moab, the cities of Moab, God is going to wail. God is going to cry out. God is going to moan for these particular people. In verse 35, I shall make an end of Moab, declares the Lord. The one who offers sacrifice on the high places and the one who burns incense to his gods. Verse 36, Therefore my heart wails for Moab like flutes. My my heart wails like flutes for the men of Keharis. Therefore they have lost the abundance it produced. God is grieving. God is mourning against sending judgment against a group of people who aren't even His. Like Israel is His. Hosea 11 verses 8 and 9 talked about Israel. This passage talks about a pagan nation and it tells us that God is grieved at that. God is grieved at that. I can remember uh, and this you see this on several different levels. When someone who's a notorious criminal is executed, when someone who has inflicted great damage worldwide, like a um, Osama bin Laden, when they are killed, what is our response? I understand how there can be a group of emotions. But I don't think that we should cheer in the street in the same way it's a football game or basketball game. There is a thankfulness that wrong has been righted and justice has been done. I understand that. But it's always a profound and serious thing. It's a profound and serious thing It's not a pep rally. And I think our judgment should be, yes, you know, I am thankful that those who have done wrong are called to account for the wrongs they've done. But what a failure, a colossal failure of a human life that one was created in God's image. They were created to glorify God and they have rebelled against Him totally. And so there's kind of both sides of that that are true. Anne? I think the way this is written is more evidence that in certain by God that the Israelites not it didn't come from Jeremiah himself because what other ancient literature, you know, that supposedly the words of its God would ever, you know, lament the um, demise of an enemy. That's a good you know, point. That just doesn't happen. We don't think that way. And the Israelites wouldn't have thought that way on their own. Yes. It was God saying this about his own creation. That's a good point. Yes, I, I wouldn't know of any parallel to that. In the in ancient literature, where any god claims to experience any kind of sadness that another people are destroyed or wiped off the face of the earth, you find that 
with Israel's God. That, that is a good point. That is a good point. Um, I will tell you something else that I think may play a part, but, but this is not specifically said of the nations here. I draw this from other passages. One is the idea, uh, or four is the idea of Lex Talionis, and that is the idea, and I wrote something about that on uh, our page this week, um, that is the idea, to boil it down, that the punishment fits the crime. That punishment fits the crime. That a person is punished in the way that they have done wrong to others. Let me show you an example of this. Okay, look at Psalm 137. Psalm 137. This is perhaps the strongest imprecatory statement in the whole Old Testament. This is by the rivers of this starts out by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept. The people are mourning in Babylonian captivity. But listen to verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, tear it down, tear it down to its very foundation. Edom apparently is cheering as this is happening to Judah. And you think about that. Cheering as the city is destroyed, as women are raped, as people are killed. And he says in verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Now, some say, how could the Bible have such a statement? How blessed is the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. But notice how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you repaid us. That was a tactic used by armies of war and used by the Babylonians. Now you think about a couple, few children in this classroom today. Think about witnessing that. A power come in and invade. Are we going to dispassionately say God's in control and love those people and want them to repent? And I'm not denying that either of those are true. Those are both true. Even at the darkest moments, God help us to see it. But we're going to war judgment. And often the way God repaid nations was the way that they had judged others. There's a passage, and I'm looking, and it is not on this sheet either. Isaiah 13, verse 15 and 16. 
Isaiah 13, 15, and 16. As Isaiah announces judgment on Babylon, and when he announces judgment on Babylon, he says basically the same thing in Psalm 137. Now, do I know this happened with the Canaanites? I, I, I don't know for sure. But it's used so frequently in the Bible. And in 1 Samuel 15 verse 33, it's used when Agag, the king of the Amalekites, is punished. Samuel says to him, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. You've made other mothers to be childless and so now your mother will be made childless. This comes to play here in the judgment on Amlet. Could it, came, could it have come when God tells them to go and destroy the Canaanites' children have the Canaanites done that to other people's children? Now, the next thing I'm doing is philosophical. But it ties with what Sarah said earlier. We don't know. We don't know what evil would these nations... these nations have done if they lived. What nation, what evil would they have done if they lived? We, we don't know. You know. I can remember one time sitting in our little apartment in the Czech Republic and a person who's claiming to be an atheist basically had one argument. And, and, I, and, I, and I will say, I will say I do think this argument resonates even a lot more among the Czech people than it does among us. Because a lot of them had relatives that really suffered when Hitler um, came in. And so some of them do bear real scars of that. I'm not mocking their pain. Understand that. But he claimed to be an atheist and he kept saying, if God is God, if, if God is there, why didn't he stop Hitler? Why didn't he let him be born? Now why? Well, I, I understand that question. I've asked those questions before. And you know, Hitler too had a brother that died in childhood. And, you know, you think, why couldn't that have been him? But we don't know that his brother wouldn't have been worse. Well, I mean, we, we don't know that. We don't know. And so we can't argue both. We can't argue God is so cruel. God is so evil. Why did he destroy these people and yet not recognize that you say about other nations and about other peoples, why did God let them exist with all the evils that they did? You see... We don't know what God knows. And we don't know all that God is taking 
into consideration. But it may have been, it may have been that these nations would have performed atrocities that would have affected world history in horrible ways. We just don't know. And we've at least got to give the God who made them and the God who loved them the benefit of the doubt in thought there. Now, also something that happened, and I think that we will see this amply illustrated. I want to just mention this. The Canaanites would have corrupted Israel. They would have corrupted Israel. Now, what word could I leave out or change in that list? Did. Yes, it could be did. It could be did. Because they did that. And you see that this verse was not on my handout. Judges 3, verses 5 and 6. The same kind of thing that are warned against in these passages that I do have down, Numbers 33 and Deuteronomy 7, we see that's what happened. God warns, destroy them or you're going to intermarry with them and you're going to serve their gods. And what's going to happen in Judges 3 is they are going to intermarry with them and serve their gods. So we're going to see that played out. But God is saying, destroy them or they will destroy you. And then a seventh point. A seventh point is that uh, they could have repented. They could have repented. I give you examples of Joshua 2 and Joshua 9. Uh, Joshua 2 might be stronger than Joshua 9 because they made that covenant under false pretenses. But is there ever any uh, ever a hint of dissatisfaction that, that Rahab was spared from the destruction of Jericho? I mean, does God ever you know, say, listen, you shouldn't have done this. Does it, the people complain, the people murmur. She said, we know what your God has done and we know your God's going to give you the land and we're going to surrender. I'm surrendering to your God. But just protect me. That option was open to all the Canaanites. Rahab said, we all know about this. But she was the one that surrendered. What, what else do you say? Anything right now? Okay. Hey, Tommy. Also, yes. with Joshua 9, with the Gibeonites, um, it says in 11... Uh, they, they, they're proclaiming God's greatness. Right. 11-19. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. So it, it sounds like yeah. all of those nations could have mm-hmm. tried at least to make a treaty and yeah. instead they decided to fight against yes. uh, That's right. Israel. So I, they could have repented too, just like the Gibeonites. That's what, they are not forced to fight against Israel. You know, they see what's happening. They even think at points that the defeat is inevitable, but they gather together for battle against them. So uh, it's not that these are an innocent people, but also in uh, God's ultimate purpose 
God's ultimate purpose is to save. And it's not just to save Israel, but to save all people. Through you and your seed, Abraham was told, that all nations of the earth will be blessed, Genesis 12 and verse 3, and Genesis 22 and verse 18. God's desire is to save. Now, let me tell you something that I think this next point, this ninth point, is a key difference between Old Testament religion and Islam. The instruction to destroy the Canaanites was not the generic discussion on how to deal with foreigners at all times for Israel. It was a specialized command and instruction for a specific group of Israel's enemies. It wasn't wherever you meet them, wherever you see them, kill the infidel. It wasn't that. It was a specific instruction for a specific time. Do you ever find anybody in Old Testament history using that instruction for the book of Joshua to go out and to use that as justification for destroying another helpless people? Well, you might you might have something like that in Judges 18, the tribe of Dan did, but I don't think that's right. I don't think it has God's approval. I think that was a result of their unbelief and their cowardice and not because everything in that context is saying there was no king in Israel and every man did what's right in his own eyes. There's disapproval of that. Disapproval of that. I mean, to take that just a little further, I mean... God not only didn't say destroy all the foreigners wherever you meet them, he said treat a foreigner like a brother. Yes. You know. Yes. You were a foreigner in a foreign land and yes. you weren't treated well, so you know how that feels. You should be kind to of the foreigner, be kind to of the, the widow, the yes. orphan, all of that. Exactly. Um, Leviticus 19, 33 and 34 is one of the verses you could put onto what Sarah is saying. But that is very true and that's a very good point. I should have had that. I'll have to expand this list. Uh, but I, I want us to get this to it. Let's go back to our first point about how none of us grasp how profoundly serious sin is. And then to the last point on this, that Jesus is going to return... He is pictured as being a warrior on a white horse conquering in Revelation 19 and his garment being dipped in blood. Um, The picture of judgment on the Canaanites is a reminder of what awaits the wicked at the end of history. I'm not saying exactly the same way I'm not saying everything in Revelation 19 is literal. I am saying is a picture of the judgment of God. Do we grasp the horror of sin? Do we grasp how horrible judgment will be for those who are unprepared? This section of Scripture 
reminds us of both of these. I appreciate it. I appreciate Paul teaching while I was away. Lord willing, as I understand Paul, Leviticus 20, or Judges 21 with Levi, Joshua 21. Yeah, what the chapter does. I'm saying Judges. Judges. Okay. I'm getting excited about Judges. But, but anyway, we're still in Joshua. Joshua 21, Levites, Wednesday night. Thank you.